All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. Uh, we've got actually two special guests on the show with us today. So first we have in the top left corner, Dr. Elena Buglo, who is a neuroscientist and neurogeneticist who works in gene therapy for rare diseases. She has vast interests in consciousness and cognitive neuroscience. She's originally from Russia and used to be a lawyer before her transition into neuroscience. And down at the bottom, we have Dr. Nizar Taki, who is a plastic surgeon turned life coach and a self-described student of human consciousness. Uh, Dr. Taki is also an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. He leads webinars which discuss topics related to stress, consciousness, and the nature of reality. And for those longtime Roscoe's Wetsuit listeners, you guys probably recognize Nizar. He's been a guest on a couple shows before, so welcome back. And for Elena, um, welcome to Roscoe's Wetsuit. Thanks for the invitation. Very glad to be here. Thanks for having uh, us. Absolutely. So what I wanted to get started with is a discussion on consciousness, which, you know, it's kind of a mystery in terms of neuroscience. We, we haven't been able to exactly say, you know, this brain region causes consciousness to occur. There's different theories as far as what in the brain is producing consciousness. And I'd like to hear each of your guys' perspectives on uh, kind of consciousness and, and you know, that mystery in neuroscience. So what a great question. I guess I'll start. I've had a vast interest in understanding consciousness ever since I've been conscious. And uh, I think it's a grand mystery, both for science and uh, spirituality. And throughout my path, I've been really trying to marry the two to find both um, the explanation for myself as a spiritual human being and a scientist and the explanation for all of us, really. So going back to some of my earlier days when I was in uh, neuroanatomy classes, and um, I think uh, I'm sure Nizar probably had a similar experience, you let me know, when uh, we were in a group of students and we were brought a brain in formamide on, uh, on a plate. <laughs> and we dissected that brain, right? Many students were curious and, you know, digging in, looking into this mass of uh, jelly, of this um, jelly-like matter. And I was utterly shocked. I think I had a very profound experience of realizing that someone's whole was potentially as um, presented by the neuroscience view, by the major mainstream neuroscience understanding was in, encapsulated somehow in this brain or was processed through this piece of matter. And it was, it was utterly shocking to even think that this 
matter can create the whole life experience which is the major view, right? I'm only referring to the major view of neuroscience as of today. The whole experience of life, such as love, connection, friendship, the experience, uh, the qualia, or what we call the experience of the feeling of life, like the taste of food, the touch, the, um, the smell, of a favorite perfume and the smell of the flower, the whole grandesque visual experience that we go through every day in nature and in everyday life. And it is the what is called the hard problem of consciousness is it is hard. <laughs> it's hard to even encompass how this matter can produce such an incredible experience of life and it's all life as we know it life is all we know this 86 something billion neurons and the same number of glial cells that can produce this human experience and it is still a huge a big remarkable question in science is um, considering all of the neural correlates of consciousness does the brain truly yet explain this experience of human nature that's the brain generated and there are other theories of consciousness that uh, such as panpsychism right Nizar maybe you could elaborate on this a little more where uh, it's considered or it's viewed as consciousness can be can be present in everything the consciousness is the quality of this space-time reality and it penetrates ever throughout in every atom and there are theories that kind of like somewhere in between and no Nizar, what what do you what do you think and what do you what do you like to add to this well um I think as, as scientists, uh, if we want to be true scientists when it comes to everything and especially consciousness, then to me, being a true scientist means not having any pre-existing assumptions when you're trying to answer a question. And unfortunately, when scientists approach consciousness they do come with it with a lot of pre-existing assumptions and it makes it really hard to talk about the topic for example if somebody hands you a brain and they say here this is where consciousness comes from that's a pre-existing assumption but i understand why people have that assumption because i'm a doctor and i've seen patients who you know get shot in the head and they're not conscious because they're brain has a hole in it. Or if you remove a piece of somebody's brain, they seem to change how they're expressing themselves, their, how they're consciously expressing themselves. Uh, as their brain gets more injured, their consciousness seems to decrease. They become more and more unconscious. And so then it kind of, I understand why there's that assumption because of these uh, correlations. But there's also a saying in statistics, which is, and I was a statistics major and it really influenced my view on the world that correlation does not equal causation. And 
it really helps to step back and 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 not have any pre-existing assumptions specifically with consciousness and the brain you know if i have a tv and there's like a news program playing on it and i punch the the tv and i break the speaker and now there's no sound coming out i don't assume that there's a uh, a news person inside the tv and that's where the news broadcast is coming from it's not being created by the tv or if i punch the screen and now there's no picture on the screen i don't assume that there's a um a guy in there that's now that's now dead because or that now can't speak because i broke the screen we all understand that the television is transmitting something it's receiving a signal from elsewhere and it's allowing us to perceive that signal and yes, if you break a, a transmitter, if you break uh, the speaker on the TV or you break the screen or you unplug it, then the signal goes away. But that doesn't mean that the news person that you're seeing on the TV is inside the TV. It just means that they're receiving something from elsewhere. And I'm not saying, and again, I'm not saying that this is how consciousness works. I'm just saying that it makes sense that consciousness, uh, that the brain could be a tool that our consciousness uses to interact with the world, but we have many, many documented reports of near-death experiences, which means people whose brains stopped working and documented that they stopped working, who were still able to be conscious and perceive what was happening in the room, which suggests that what I, same thing I'm talking about. If you break the TV, the news person doesn't just go away or the signal that's creating the news person doesn't go away and um there's a lot of evidence for that in the near near-death experience studies um and in out-of-body experience studies but with science we have a uh somebody called this uh phenomena uh, he basically described it as, as, as a phenomenon where when something really weird happens, we just, we just say, no, it's not possible. And, and we ignore it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't fit in with our accepted paradigms. And that's not real science. You know, you have to, even if there's an outlier, especially if there's more than one, you can't just push them aside. Rather, it may mean that you have to change your existing worldview. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, and just, I agree so much with you on that. And I'd like to touch upon a few things that you said. Um, first of all, I also think, even logically, from a logical perspective, that of course we have all the knowledge, the like as you said, the pre-existing assumptions of um, that we base that we're basing as scientists our understanding scientific understanding of the worldview upon and it really comes uh, from you know theory of evolution uh, that is and for me as a geneticist as well uh, it, it is there's just so much data to see and, and to understand that we are evolved we are evolved biological 
beings based on interactions with environment, right? A, a whole knowledge of evolution, the variants that come up in genetics. And for me also as a geneticist, it's interesting to ponder about our consciousness based on um, genetic variability as well. Let's say out of um, six something billion base pairs of human DNA, which uh, only maybe one to 3% of it is a coding, uh, coding regions. But out of this six something billion base pairs, letters of DNA that create a whole, you know, biological body, which not only has um, genes that produce proteins structurally and functionally, but also adapts to environment in epigenetic ways. Only one base pair change in uh, an essential gene or, you know, for dominant diseases and for recessive disease, like two base pair changes that are pathogenic can lead to the most devastating disease, which will lead to the most devastating and morbid experience, per, the personal experience of a human being. Let's say, for example, diseases of uh, spinal muscular atrophy or Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Uh, so those rare genetic diseases that create a, a body that is not, you know, not functional as uh, to enjoy and to pre pre um, the reality as we would call on average a healthy person would process and experience. And then like right now I'm working in uh, neurotransmitter diseases of disease of metabolism that is also genetic. So it, it is also extremely devastating uh, in ways that uh, people, children uh, with these diseases cannot experience reality as a normal person would whatsoever. They don't develop movement or um, they're, not they're not able to interact with the environment whatsoever. So <laughs> this poses a great question as well of consciousness also in the ways of variability, not only genetic, but environmental, uh, the variability of our cultural upbringing, the variability of our experience that leads us to a specific time in uh, space where our personality or our the human existence experiences the real the personal reality around us and within us. So this is one um, interesting problem that I that I see as an experiencer of reality that comes from the biological nature of human beings. Yet um, I really like there was a biologist Thomas Huxley in 19th century who said how incredible that something as remarkable as appearance of consciousness through irritating the nervous tissue comes about as unaccountable as a genie appearing from rubbing a lamp you know uh, so is the mind really only there for the ride with the brain so very interesting topic that you've mentioned is um, most certainly those outliers, those outlier experiences that do not fit into the understanding of science as we know it, which is of course the materialistic 
worldview and um, that is based upon you know biochemistry biology and then physics uh, mathematics of uh, the universe so this is a very interesting question and i um i would like to mention that there are scientists who are not necessarily mainstream and they still use scientific method in order to approach this understanding and that study those near-death experiences those ex those experiences of non-local perception and uh, like such as telepathy of course the connectedness of consciousness which is really um you know mysteriously intricate question and for myself and my personal uh, scientific human experience i've been deeply convinced uh, like i've seen enough data for myself that is both um, and sometimes you don't you don't need really more than n of one when experience is profoundly real and true to you uh, that would change your own personal lifetime and perception for yourself right that reminds me of this movie i don't know if you guys watched it this movie uh called i origin have you guys watched it you watched yes. it do you remember how there was this scientist who was um looking for a gene that was uh uh, responsible for the you know creation of the eye the eye but it was also the interplay of words like the eye origin the origin of the eye or the cell and um he goes through a personal experience well i, I don't want to <laughs> spoil the movie but through personal experience where his uh, loved one dies and he is searching for that loved one through the eyes based on the theory that um this woman possibly reincarnated as a, a girl in a different country and uh, when he encounters that n of one experience that proves to him that it is her indeed reincarnated it's like his whole scientific view just collapses right because it is so meaningful he doesn't need n of three to have the statistical significance that is personally meaningful and profound that um as you referred to those anecdotal experience of the near-death experiences this is also very true and i also remember it, it's obviously hard to study you cannot induce a near-death experience in a lab right it's very hard to catch it perhaps also not everybody would have a near-death experience when they go to coma as far as i know it's only like 30 percent or so of people that report it and um yet i remember of Again, here in this anecdotal case of one near death experience when a blind woman, blind for her whole lifetime, she never seen with her physical eyes. She was able to describe um, everything that she saw uh, correctly, precisely in her near death experience. Like to describe, you know, the surgeons or the nurses and what they said and which, how she saw the scene. And she came back again into a body that couldn't see with the biological eyes. So also having my personal experience, I would just say something as profound that has convinced yourself that the world is not necessarily the way we know it um, in mainstream science can change, um, you know, it can change everything for ourselves 
as scientists, as people who try to explain this reality and to perhaps to entice other scientists to look into that. And I would like to compliment the one of my favorite scientists called Dean Redding, uh, who is studying telepathy, studying, uh, you know, the, they're doing some experience on quantum number generators and um, some other experience, uh, experiments also with uh, participation of observer of the reality to understand how it changes uh, the collapse of the quantum function basically which we don't have to get into but it really means that consciousness can affect indeed the matter so the consciousness perhaps could be primary to matter which takes it outside of the materialistic worldview or somehow it may as well it just kind of shifts the perspectives of where consciousness comes rather than being an epiphenomena of the brain could it be as you were describing the perceiver the processor could, could the brain be the perceiver and the processor of the consciousness i wanted to ask you as a follow-up question very similar to a lot of the stuff that you're talking about elena related mm -hmm. to you know we all experience the world you know through our own filters you know subjectively but there's also a lot of talk about, you know, kind of finding the, the true nature of reality. So I want to hear your guys' opinions on this as far as how do we go about, you know, kind of moving beyond our own worldview, our own beliefs uh, and thoughts about, you know, ourselves and other people and the world around us uh, to actually move into kind of understanding the, the sort of true nature of reality. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Nizar, you want to go? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I think it starts with well, first there's the understanding that there is no one reality in a sense because we all have our own subjective bubble and so we experience you, 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 even you yourself will experience the same situation differently depending on, you know, what mood you're in, how much sleep you, you got, what you're thinking about at that time, let alone like a completely different person with a whole different set of experiences and et cetera. But I think the reason that our, our subjective realities are so different is because we don't have, you're right, we don't have an accurate view of what reality is meaning that we come to reality with a set of assumptions and the assumptions that most of humans have right now is that reality is a time that you spend on this earth and then you have a limited time and then then you die and then depending on your belief system either you you might maybe your belief system says you go to heaven if you're good and then you go to hell if you're bad maybe your belief system says you get reincarnated or maybe you believe that this is just it and there's nothing after this and uh and everything just is gone and after you die and this is your one shot um and unfortunately our world is set up so that you either believe in like religion let's say like uh you believe in you know one of the major religions 
Um, and then there's more and more people who are so-called spiritual, who don't ascribe to a, to a religion. But for most people, if you're not religious, then they're, you know, atheist or, you know, I believe in science, meaning I don't believe in a God or an afterlife or, or anything that exists beyond this specific physical body. Um, and I think we just need to get rid of all the assumptions, not say that it's what religion says, not say that it's what science says, and start like start asking more questions instead of just saying that we know the answers. Um, you know, like all the phenomena that that uh, Elena, you were talking about, I think a lot of people who who hear about them would say, oh, no, that's impossible, that couldn't exist. And the question isn't or not whether or not those phenomena are real or exist, but the question is, why are you just saying that something is impossible? It's because you've already ascribed to a set of assumptions. So I'm not saying that people should need to start assuming certain things are real that they didn't believe before, but it's just maybe your perspective on reality isn't what you thought it, what it, what you think it is. Maybe reality isn't uh, what it appears to be. And if you think about, I mean, the, the, to me, what, what made me realize this was when I thought about my dreams. Like when I'm asleep and I'm dreaming, all kinds of crazy stuff could be happening. And I'm totally, in the dream, I believe it's real. I don't realize that I'm dreaming until I wake up and I think, wow, that was a crazy dream. I can't believe I thought that was real. And yet then we go about our daily lives, you know, in a world where we, science really hasn't explained how our consciousness is creating reality, hasn't explained how the Big Bang created the universe, hasn't explained so many things, and yet we just take it for granted that it all makes sense and it's normal. But who's to say that at the end of this life, an equivalent thing isn't going to happen where your consciousness wakes up somewhere else, maybe in another dimension, maybe in a room on a space, maybe like in the matrix or something. But basically, who's to say that you're not going to wake up after this life somewhere else or as something else and say, oh my God, that was a crazy dream or crazy reality or whatever it was. Because we have that experience every single night and when we wake up. So mm -hmm. just, start question, just start questioning and then you'll start getting well, at least we can all agree that we have no idea what reality is. And, and that's closer to the truth than we all are now with our own separate, uh, like stable and rock solid beliefs that are actually founded on, on fit shaky assumptions. Yeah, it yeah, sounds like really fascinating. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I mean, it sounds like, you know, the, the these are what you're saying is kind of, uh, just challenging some of those core beliefs. Uh, I, I think, you know, that's something a lot of people, uh, maybe not in the fields that, that we're in, I think a lot of people don't even come to think of, you know, the fact that their experience of reality is, is subjective and that someone else who they're having a disagreement with, that, you know, is, is actually seeing the world through a different lens and they don't understand that that the way they're seeing things is different than the way I'm seeing things. Anyways, Elena, I'm curious, what, what's your take on the, on both what Nizar said along with just the original question that I posed? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, there's so many, so much uh, mystery and um, magnificence in this question. I find it utterly fascinating and unfathomable how consciousness can be this everything that we know and for each of you for each of us it is yet so different so no matter how culturally similar we are no matter how physically similar we are biologically genetically similar we are Perhaps the um, upbringing was very similar. The connections between our neurons is similar. Let's say if we're uh, twins, right? Uh, like uh, the zygotic twins. No matter how we feel as we are right next to one another, looking at the same thing or hearing listening, hearing the same piece of music, having, experiencing the reality in this togetherness, yet our experience will be very different. You know, and I find it so fascinating and I'm constantly longing in my life experience for this idea of shared reality. We are in, seem to be in a shared reality yet for each of us it is different and it, it's just there's no answer to this question it's just it's just incredible and uh fascinating um not only we experience it as uh, so differently but i think we as humans are longing for the sense of you know deep connection and understanding of each other and one of the characteristics of consciousness which we haven't even touched upon the definition of consciousness and nobody has a definition um as a spoiler yet um we're longing for this coherence in understanding that we are sharing somehow this similar perception the similar experience of life when we are sharing this personal local reality together even by zoom <laughs> you know that somehow we are right this in this moment no matter what it is uh, that is again running uh, on the background of our also unconscious and how much we slept and what we ate and what kind of drama we went through or what kind of excitement we went through earlier in life or in the day Somehow we're here sharing the same reality that is yet so uh, dissimilar. So what I am being really fascinated by is that resonance that occurs between humans in these transcendental experiences of human connection. Not necessarily human, actually. I even, I think in my own experience, I've experienced with my love pet with my dog or even with nature yet the observer that idea the concept of the observer of the conscious agent the conscious agent as opposed to a robot or an ai that is somehow present and is generating the uh, you know somewhat mm, 
talks <laughs> experience of understanding. Imagine if uh, one of you guys was an AI and we're here and I'm really trying to relate to you. I'm really trying to be like, are you getting what I'm saying? Are you, you know, are you understanding this concept of idea? And then the moment when you get me, there's this coherence occurs and in physics, it is, um, or as much as I can relate to as an allegory or a metaphor, or maybe even a true description of the consciousness, if consciousness is somewhat a wave-like nature of reality that penetrates whole ether of space and time, it is this um, moment of resonance. You know, when there are natural frequencies, like every object has natural frequencies, and uh, the moment when these natural frequencies align and overlap, the resonance may occur. So from the amplitude that is this small, the, the moment of, in the moment of resonance when waves overlap, the intensity, the amplitude of the wave goes way higher. So this is called resonance in physics. And there was, uh, you know, ex examples in, um, in history where the uh, bridge collapsed, I think somewhere, Oregon, right? Somewhere, somewhere in, the, in the West, when uh, the natural frequency of the bridge uh, match the natural frequency of the wind passing and the whole bridge structure collapses and starts this bubbling. And the same, I think, very similar experience with very few times in my lifetime when I would have this incredible transcendental moments of coherence and resonance with other humans that would feel so true and that as if nothing else before and after was as true and real as this observation of witnessing of reality as shared reality. Being able to like, almost like the co coherence of consciousness or consciousness that somehow overlaps and renders this expansion of truth, um, you know, like universal beauty and love or whatnot. It was just experience of things being even more real than they seem to be and then the moment to moment in everyday life there's so many fluctuations of how we experience reality like the coherence so one of the definitions of consciousness is that the co somehow there's a coherence of experience um and also like we can just talk about a little bit about definitions like there are definitions of consciousness that refer to self-consciousness. So the I, the understanding of the I, like there's I, I'm Elena, Dr. Vuglow, there's Dr. Taki, and um, everything that, that belongs to I, right? My story, um, everything that I am, everything that I do, my qualities and characteristics that are somewhat, um, uh, you know, accumulated to have some coherence and yet there's so many fluctuations and yet consciousness exists even without i and yet somehow consciousness falls or dissipates into nothingness when we go to deep sleep um and the brain waves that are associated with our conscious perception while we're conscious are very different yet the activity of the brain like going back to neural correlates of the brain and consciousness yet the activity of the brain 
uh, like brain is as active awake as it's active asleep but the brain waves and the um, like the correlations or, or the talking between different regions of the brain is like a little slower and uh, less coherent during sleep and then there are periods of rapid eye movement when we see the dreams and again when we see the dreams is there really another question is there really an eye is it the same person that you coherently waken up to that you seem to be the same person every day is it the same person in your dreams so this question was asked before and often it's some kind of like nondescript person it's not exactly the personality that we wake up to uh, go back to on a daily basis so all of this is still open-ended questions um, and I only talk about it to share all this fascination because I really don't know the answer to any, any of these questions. Right. Well, it's interesting. I mean, just, I think the, some of the most interesting questions are the ones, you know, that don't have a clear answer that we can talk about and ponder and that philosophers of and neuroscientists and, you know, spirituality people have pondered for, you know, all of humanity. I, I wanted to talk about a similar kind of concept related to uh, the ego. And I know a lot of people, um, you know, kind of in this sort of uh, spirituality, uh, the bridge between kind of spirituality and neuroscience, people talking about, uh, you know, the ego being bad and kind of striving for, for ego death with a variety of different, uh, I guess, mechanisms. Um, but there's also, on the other hand, uh, people who say the ego actually serves a lot of really useful functions. I wanted to hear each of your guys' opinions on, on the ego and is it good, is it bad, or somewhere in between? Um, that's a great point. Uh, and I like that you included, because I, I used to be, you know, as you learn about this stuff, you first learn about the ego and try to get rid of it. We got to get rid of our ego. Um, but you, you can't, I mean, first of all, what is the ego? It's, I think there's different uh, definitions and I think mine changes constantly, but one great definition is it's the story that you tell about yourself and from a neuroscience standpoint, we have two hemispheres of the brain, the right and the left. And the left brain is the part of your brain that speaks. It has the language center. And it's thought that with the evolution of language, we started being able to describe things and label things, including things outside of us and ourselves. Um, and actually our perception of time as humans uh, also coincided with the ability to use language because if you think about like animals and humans you know maybe when we were before we had language we would just the only thing that existed was the present moment but with language you could label directions like left right forward back and if you look at the way we think of time we think of it in terms of space like if i tell you to imagine um the past and the future you'll and the present moment you'll imagine a line with you know the future usually on the right and the past on the left 
Interestingly, in languages where uh, scripts go in the opposite direction, the location of the past and the future are reversed or maybe they're up and down. So we used language to help us develop a time, like a, a timeline. And so this something that happened in the past now could be kind of remembered and, and labeled and things and things that we did in the past could now be remembered and labeled and then we could be labeled so i could start saying oh i'm the type of person that does this or my name is this and i do that and i like that and i don't like this and this as this gets more and more complicated we create a complicated story of ourselves and then others also have their own stories of us which we may take into account for our story and over time it evolves and we start playing into the role of the story that we created until we forget that we that it's just a story and we actually start believing that it's really who we are. So I think you need it in the sense that same way that you need to think about the past and the future and like I can't you can't interact with me unless you have a story about me and and I need to kind of know that story so that I can interact with people on a day-to-day -day basis. In that sense, it's good. And if I didn't have an ego at all, then probably I would be more like, I would probably be difficult. I, I would not be able to be in a society like ours and I'd be more like a, I don't know, like a, like, <laughs> like I know uh, these are. I was just thinking it would be so inconvenient to call you every time and you would be like a different person each time or like a nondescript somebody. Yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't have um, a deal you know, like the, 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 the people that grow up in like raised by wolves or whatever, you know, that kind of a person. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a great question. What does it mean to totally not have an ego? I think we need it to function in society. But I think the other issue is, is when your ego is too solid and too much of who you are, then you start repeating past behaviors that are not helpful when in reality you could respond in a different way. And so the important thing about the ego is not to not have one, but to realize that it's malleable. And uh, Elaine and I had this conversation recently, and I think this is the best way to think about the ego, is it's like a role that an actor takes when they're on a stage. So when an actor pretends to be a character, they have to step into that role. And in a sense, while they're on the stage, they forget, they, they literally take on the emotions of that character and that character's story so that they can communicate something to the audience and make the audience feel something. But what they don't do is they don't think that they're actually that character uh, when they, you know, both when they're on the stage and when they're off the stage, when they finish the, the act, they don't go off stage and keep pretending to be that character. So, and then when it's a time for another production, they might be a completely different character. And so a good actor can shift from one character to another, depending on the play, depending on the scene, but they're able to step into that role fully. And I think, I like to think of ego as that, as, as it's the story that we tell ourselves but most people just have this one story and they don't even realize it's a story, they think it's fact. Whereas truly uh, living life to the fullest entails being able to choose your story based on the moment and what serves you best and never 
completely forgetting that you're creating a story because then you're going to be limited by that story because the same story isn't going to work for every situation. Whereas somebody without an ego at all might not have be able to experience a full range of the drama of life, so to speak. So there you have it. That's, that's my way of thinking about it. And I'm still formulating it as to what it means, but that seems to, to work for me. Well, you're still formulating it because you're, you don't have that big of an ego that all of your, <laughs> your thoughts exactly. are solidified, right? Exactly. No, I mean, that's the thing is I don't, I never to say that I know something for a, like, this is what it is. I always just say, this is what it seems like it might be to me. And if it resonates with other people, then great. But like, again, my training was in statistics and, and with statistics, you can never be a hundred percent sure about anything. We always say, you know, there's a 99% probability that it's this, but there's always that chance that, that it's not. And, I think that's the best way to, co to come at this stuff is say, this is what it seems like, but I'm always open to revising it if a better definition or, or a more complete perspective comes along. And I don't, think, I don't think we'll ever have the full answer, but we'll always evolve. What's your take on the ego, Lena? Yeah, that's a, such a grand question. Um, there are many interesting parts of this question that I could elaborate upon. And also, obviously, don't know the answer. I'm not going to give you any answers. Uh, but just some of the interesting questions that um, surround the idea of ego is, uh, again, coming back to understanding of what is self-consciousness, right? Is the idea, is ego equal equating to self-consciousness? Is it understanding of the self and the perception of the self self-construct right or maybe it's probably not uh, but it's one again one of the definitions of maybe subdivisions of what consciousness is but then in my understanding my idea of ego so much the big part of ego is unconscious and also our experience our everyday experience of life is there's it, only like the consciousness of what we are conscious about or like where, where our attention goes uh, out of everything that we perceive around us. There is um, probably like over 90% that is unconscious and we're still perceiving it and we may still react to it also as you know, biological beings whether it is something stressful, whether it's the uh, gloomy weather that's right now outside, <laughs> make, making you feel uncomfortable somewhere on the inside, whether it's um, um, some other underlying issue like, you know, lack of sleep or uh, some other bothering, uh, some other bothering issue that is on the back of the mind, but is you're not fully conscious about it as it is again, unconscious. So I think ego, to me, as Nizar was describing, it has the stories, but most of it, a lot of stories are unconscious. And this is a very interesting conversation going back to the split brain, right, Nizar? When uh, right hemisphere would have uh, one understanding of the story, when the left hemisphere would have a different understanding. 
and uh, the language centers, which you also describe and have evolved um, in order to serve, of course, our communication and also self-perception, they uh, are situated on the left, in the left hemisphere, they're localized to the left hemisphere, which is one of the very few, one of the only differences that we know of between right and left brain really is in this localization of the language perception and language producing centers. So to give an example, um, maybe Nizar, do, do you remember of like a good example of uh, this incoherence between perception of left and right brain? You mean, you mean in terms of the studies that were done on it or, or meaning like the, the studies, the studies. Mm -hmm. Let's say how the left brain comes up with stories, right? When you oh, ask yeah. something, uh, when uh, so uh, I don't know, just a little more background. There used to be this surgery that would uh, cut the corpus callosum uh, to reduce the number of epileptic seizures, to reduce the epileptic uh, seizure activity in the brain in patients. And once they were divided somehow, so the two hemispheres, again, they were separated, right? They didn't have the white matter connection tracks that would allow to hemispheres to communicate. And yet when the patient would come out of anesthesia, he would still appear to have the same coherent consciousness when interacting with reality with, you know, both eyes, both ears. But when the perception was separated for um, the experiments, so they were the guinea pigs for uh, the doctors to experiment uh, on. So the perception was separated, let's say, by the visual field, and the stimuli was presented to um, um, one hemisphere, to let's say, to the to the right hemisphere, and the left hemisphere didn't know what it was, but somehow it knew, and it somehow it would still explain. Uh, by whichever story was appropriate. Let's say there was something about chicken, chickens and uh, yeah. shovels, right? Yeah, like, yeah, that one, one example is, um, okay, that, that, one's, that one's a good one. A simple example is they would do something like, they, they can give instructions to one hemisphere by, by speaking it into the ear um, on that side, I believe. So, if, if the hemispheres are disconnected, mm -hmm. if you were to whisper something into the right ear, let's say, it only goes to the right hemisphere. So they would tell the right hemisphere, get up and walk out of the room, right? And so the, the hemisphere is still connected to your body, so you get up and start walking out of the room. But when they ask you, why did you leave the room, the speaking hemisphere is the left hemisphere, and it doesn't know the reason why the right hemisphere walked chose to just get up and start walking out of the room but instead of being confused like hmm, i don't know that's really strange it just comes up with an excuse like i wanted to go get a coke which actually and so before I, I turn it back to you i just realized when i was struggling to think of what would it be like to not have an ego you, there's a ted talk in a book called my stroke of insight by jill bolte taylor who is a neuroscientist and she had a left hemisphere stroke and basically could was aware during the whole process and could describe what her experience was like and i won't i'll let you know whoever was listening to this look up the ted talk or check out the book themselves just to see what it's what it's like but her description of um when her left hemisphere goes offline i think is 
a very accurate description of what ego death is and what it's like not to have an ego. And if you follow what she's saying, it makes sense that like you wouldn't be able to really function in the world without having an mm -hmm. ego. It to feel really good, but it doesn't seem conducive to functioning in, in, in the world. And the opposite would happen if you have a right brain stroke where your left brain is um, now sort of in control of everything. And what happens there is what's called hemineglect syndrome, which, you know, Elena knows all about this as well. But basically the entire left half of the world, because the left half of the world is perceived by the right hemisphere because it crosses over, is just non-existent. Not that you can't see it, it just, your left brain will create a story that says everything on, on the other side that the right brain is perceiving just doesn't exist. So, you know, when they have to, when, when they're asked to draw, um, you know, the, like draw the numbers on the face of a clock, they're all drawn on, on the right side. Or when, let's say their arm is paralyzed because of the stroke, um, it would be their left arm that's paralyzed because that's controlled by the right brain. And if you show them, you ask them, hey, can you move your arm? They'll say yes, even though they can't. And it's, that's the left brain sort of fabricating a story. And then when you show them their arm and say, look, this is your arm, can you move it? And they'll say, that's not my arm, that's my neighbor's arm. And so basically it's showing <laughs> that the left brain, which they've called, they've called a part of it called the left brain interpreter, its only job, which it's really good at, is coming up with stories to explain what's in front of us, even if those stories aren't true. And we can't exactly turn it off, but once we start realizing that that's what's happening, we begin to know that we don't always have to take those stories seriously, and we start seeing alternate explanations of what might be happening. So. Yeah, this is so interesting. I would like to touch upon a few things you said. Um, Again, like going back to knowing that, right? Knowing this experiment, having this experience in account, going back to uh, this theory, again, is the brain the producer, the generator of the consciousness, or is it the processor, the perceiver and the processor, right? Imagine the part of the processor goes off and now the consciousness just flows again, like without the ego, without the ego construct, let's say potentially through the right hemisphere or somehow that some of the centers are shut off and these other ones are being able to produce, uh, to process consciousness by different means or by different tools. Uh, also going back to the brain and understanding of consciousness. First of all, we all assume that we are as humans conscious but then there is all this variability in the ways that we, even in, on a daily basis, right, experience like how conscious we really are. And uh, sometimes I would talk to my friends and they'd be like, well, he's not conscious. She's, he's not as conscious as this one. And I would gravitate more to more conscious friends, right? <laughs> what does it really mean? <laughs> what does it really entail? Then other questions that uh, come. One uh, coma. Exactly, coma. And then, um, well, there's just so many interesting things I want to touch upon. So other questions are, are children conscious, right? Well, are they developing consciousness uh, as, they, as the brain is developing and being myelinated, which means they, you know, the 
and like the neural connections have been reaching out and forming neural circuits and they've been pruned. And then as we know in uh, disorders of autism, the neural connections are grown so much and the pruning doesn't happen as efficaciously. So there's just too, too much connectedness and those children are not, their consciousness is not the same as what we would think of a normal healthy person, child. Then uh, how is the consciousness appearing and evolving in uh, from an infancy in a child, right? And how does the ego construct evolve? And we know that children, even when they start to speak, they speak of themselves as the third person perspective. So the I, that I origin <laughs> comes a little later on. I, I don't remember exactly, I'm not a cognitive neuroscience, but I think it's around the age of five or six where it's more of a I comes in, uh, maybe earlier. But in the beginning, there's no, there's very little understanding. So the ego is forming. And then all these experiences that Nizar was also mentioning that shape our stories and a lot of them unconscious stories. Again, uh, people can have unconscious trauma or unconscious programming that happens on the neurobiological level and their memory is sh shut off. Their consciousness, conscious perception, or like basically the knowing that it existed is completely shut off because the memory could be painful and um, unpleasant, right? That's why there's like um, traumas of being molested or uh, being in an accident that are completely uh, shut off from memory because they're just, well, I don't, I don't know why, because the brain is evolved to, to out of fear to not access those memories. So, Another question is uh, that we're getting into in terms of consciousness is um, yes, there's fluctuations between uh, consciousness of a human versus consciousness of animals, right? And if we do describe consciousness as perception, like do, do animals have ego? I, I think my dog has an ego. Like my dog has a very defined personality. You know, we know that octopus uh, as an animal is uh, extremely intelligent too. And like, again, like what is the correlation between intelligence and consciousness? But it perceives reality on, in a, um, also, you know, as we know of, as we have studied them in a more advanced way than many other animals. So it's, this is just very interesting questions. Coming back to ego, what happens to uh, moments of ego dissolution that is described in, uh, by those different tools that uh, we were referring to right in the studies by John Hopkins University, the studies of using high doses of psilocybin in patients and studies of ego dissolution and what happens to the brain on MRI when uh, during the psychedelic experience, during that ego dissolution. Right, and to mention that they report these experiences as top like one percent of experiences of their lifetime, most memorable, most transforming uh, experiences of their lifetime. Those moments of ego dissolution. How incredible is that? So, and what happens to the brain on those in those experiences is, uh, again, as as has been studied, is the increase in interconnectedness. Like the whole brain lights up in the ways that are known being uh, hasn't connected before so the action potential is just go 
seen to different parts of the brain throughout the prefrontal cortex um, or visual cortex as well, a lot of activity. But then there, what also is interesting is like after the psychedelic experience that is being studied, the stronger reintegration of those networks occurs. So the re ego reintegration is uh, somehow even stronger. And I, I cannot even explain it <laughs> specifically. I don't really know what it means, but um, this is what has been studied. So ego is so interesting, as Nizar mentioned, the stories, if we, uh, as Carl Jung uh, would say, was the, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you'll call it fate. So until we um, uncover those Pandora boxes of unconscious stories, whether they're conscious or unconscious, and would bring, bring them up to the surface of the consciousness to so shine the light of consciousness in those darkness of reactions, neurobiological, you know, emotions, feelings that come up when a certain stimuli is presented. Let's say you were, you know, beat by a dog when you were a child and maybe you forgot about it, but then you, the person would always be uh, uh, feeling fear reaction to dogs, right? Or maybe spiders, like aragophobia. Uh, and uh, to we realize that we can break that that not only the brain is plastic um, whether it is a processor or generator of uh, reality and consciousness but we do know that we can change that that this is accessible and even like we know that we can use also those altered states of decoherence of uh, the ego and the stories as um, having huge potentiality, having remarkable potentiality in changing and reintegration or cha changing of the story, reintegration of life experience, let's say patients with PTSD who use whether like ketamine or um, uh, psilocybin to change that very unconscious reaction, the traumatic reaction that occurs when presented with a stimulus. If your friend died at war in front of you, you're not going to be, you know, co consciously being able necessarily to change it in your regular state of mind. But those experiences of altered consciousness, um, they hold the capacity for the open state of mind and they don't only occur in psychedelics it could be there just a very you know real uh, experience in real life that is just somehow is profound and meaningful and then also going back to the idea this concept of meaning you know what is consciousness in a way that is is it describing meaning that is connected to a feeling that is connected to emotion that is connected to a feeling of life like nizar is my friend you know, Toby is my friend, like, like for Nizar, again, because of the coherence of his ego, that he has been showing up for me in every conversation that I've had with him, uh, like it's been somewhat the same Nizar, even though he's changing and evolving, and I've been somewhat the same Elena, and I'm changing and evolving, but then there's this meaning that I assign to this friendship, to this uh, specific connection with this human being, and there are moments, um, let's just say example from uh, neuroscience disorders of consciousness dr ramachandran from um, um, 
California Tech University, I believe, he studies this disorder, interesting disorders of consciousness. He talks about, um, I think it's called Capgras syndrome. So it describes again that when uh, the person is convinced that the person that they know is an imposter is not a real friend or is not his mother, is not his uh, father or wife or husband. And uh, it is only occurs very intricate syndrome. Let's say when, um, uh, for example, this man, when he saw his mother, he would say, it's not my mother, it's an imposter. But if she called him on the phone, he would immediately recognize her by hearing her voice and uh, be like, oh my God, mother, where have you been? But if he, if he saw her in person, he would be completely disintegrated, unable to perceive her as a dear person who all of the memories and feelings and experience of life that is connected with the mother somehow is cut off because of the brain malfunction. So I know I, I wrote my high school. Mm-hmm. My high school like psychology class, we had to write a paper and I wrote mine on Capgrass syndrome because it was so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I'll just add that how Capgrass syndrome occurs is usually a lesion in the left brain. Or sorry, mm-hmm. in the right brain. So the right brain is has the part of your brain that recognizes faces. So take that for what you will, but that's what causes mm-hmm. it. So the last, the last question, because I know we're coming up onto the end of the show, but the last question I want to posit to you guys, and thank you, Elena, for bringing up psychedelics, because that's actually what I wanted to ask you guys about, is what do psychedelics and other transcendent experiences teach us about consciousness, metaphysics, and just the brain? And I know that's a very kind of huge question, but you guys can take that wherever you want to go with it. All right, I I can start with this one. Um, I think, you know, again, I'm just going to start with, I'm just going to say the basics, like for somebody that's never tried psychedelics or doesn't know anything about them, I'll say this, um, psychedelics create an experience of through consciousness that is unlike anything that you've experienced before. And, and to me, like that just shows that there's more to it than we don't understand. So like at the very basic thing, what you can, what you can say is like, there's a mode that our brain can operate in that for some reason we don't get to experience aside from in these specific states and there are there are people who can experience these modes um, without psychedelics but it's it's difficult it takes a lot of practice a lot of training and then there's people who experience them because of um trauma or in times of you know high stress Mm -hmm. um but and the sun is setting here that's why it's all getting darker around me but um but I'd like to, you know, I just like to start with that is that there's, there's more to it than our baseline consciousness. And when you become aware of that and you actually experience that, it, you start realizing that maybe 
yeah, again, maybe we don't have a full explanation for it because again, science doesn't explain why does psilocybin create the experience that it does? Why does um, ketamine create the experience that it does in patients who are undergoing you know, psychedelic therapy with it? And, and yeah, we have, a, we have like, okay, so we know the molecules and maybe we know where they act and maybe we can do an MRI of the brain while it's happening and we see that it's all lighting up, but that doesn't explain the subjective experience of it. And that subjective experience at, at the very least does what the stroke did for um, Jill Bolte Taylor. And, and I'll have you, if you could put the link in the description, that way people can check out her TED talk, which again, it's called My Stroke of Insight. It just shows her that there is a lot more to her consciousness than she could perceive in any one given moment. And in a way it's being uh, filtered. And that's what Aldous Huxley wrote about in his book, The Doors of Perception, where he was trying, I think it was Mescaline. Um, and he described basically realizing like our brains are a filtering mechanism. So actually our consciousness is it can experience way more in any given moment, but we can't handle it. So our brains, most likely the, our left brain has to uh, filter it down for us to be able to, to function. So I'll leave it at that. Elena, what are your thoughts? I know you are, this is, <laughs> I'm, um, I mean, this question is, is extremely interesting and indeed, I think science or just our average understanding as humanity of what reality truly is or could be that somehow perhaps is not, is being filtered out for that sense of personal self and sense of personal reality to somehow be preserved within a bubble there's still, it is just such an unfathomable question how something, experience of psychedelics or not necessarily psychedelics, but again, like, as you, Zara, were referring to, profound experiences in life, something that is very profound, experience of a profound synchronicity of something that is very unlikely to happen, happening, uh, experience of profound vastness, experience of infinity, the overview effect that the astronauts experienced and described when looking on Earth from the um, from the outer space, from you know the experience of divine, the experience of God, the experience of transcendence, the experience of loss of ego, the experience of uh, near death, of profound uh, universal love that type of experience that people describe on ayahuasca, the profound and fascinable ineffable, ineffable, universal love and just transcendence of this uh, biology, this biological nature of uh, reality as we think of it. I think it is such a beautifully posed question that is unanswered and it's 
holds it. I think it's such a gem for science and humanity to be looking into the utilization and proper study. And uh, I accord with John Hopkins and some other places who are studying and those scientists who are uncovering the necessity and the value that the understanding of uh, plant medicines and psychedelics and also profound transcendental experience of life can bring to us as humanity, how can also transform humanity in many positive ways. Um, what I also find interesting is this sort of like the dose effect, right? The, yeah, the enhanced, the enhanced experience. So we know, let's say for psychedelics, uh, um, that are serotonergic agonists such as psilocybin or LSD that they're specific to, again, we just talk about receptors specific to like serotonin to a 5-HT2A receptors that are largely um, expressed. So they're localized more to the very outmost layers of uh, human cortex. So like layer six or something of the human cortex. So they're very, so evolutionarily, if we think about the brain, it's like it evolves from the reptilian brain, uh, from the very brainstem, you know, reptilian brain, the basal ganglia to the, um, to more elaborate uh, connections of the prefrontal cortex. And then these elaborate connections are more uh, advanced by the types of, again, my, like the demyelination of the cortex and the types of communication between different regions of the brain. So if the brain is a processor, the experience of driving a Toyota would be different from experience of driving a Ferrari. Like imagine you accessing this extra gadgets you didn't know existed and your car just like flies off the ground. And you, suddenly you realize that the car that you had was not a car on the wheels, but is suddenly a plane. And maybe suddenly you find an, um, like a button that has access to uh, the ultra speed type of plane. Maybe some kind of warp mechanism that just flashes you through time space and you go through a wormhole into like a different part of the universe. So imagine, so imagine like, like a warp um, uh, engine, right? The warp um, um, machine that's warping time. So if engineers can right, right now work on it, uh, imagine if psychedelics do this to our brains. Imagine if we go through a wormhole of perception and somehow we are open, we, go through this rabbit hole and we come to a completely different reality and this completely different reality we, we again it's it's very hard to tell what is true and how much of it is true we know going back to the dose effect idea the mi microdosing the studies of microdosing of uh, let's say psilocybin will enhance the the experience of the sensual experience, right? The colors will go brighter. Your creativity will be a little enhanced. Like your brain will start just like 
swiftly uh, moving in more flexible ways. The ego will just start shaking just a little bit or the ego will be doing more of a dance rather than being restricted to its own uh, old ways. So not completely solution, but yet this, um, you know, the uh, spectrum, again, the range of the experience when the life is somehow become, the sensory experience of life becomes enhanced. Um, ideas, like the flexibility of thinking, the flexibility of perception, the flexibility of cognition could also be uh, a, a part of that experience, right? So having that in mind, um, again, I accord with, uh, studying of the psychedelics uh, and using the psychedelics in appropriate ways i think um, it, it definitely does something very interesting to our consciousness and i'm all for conscious expansion having that said certainly we wouldn't be perhaps able to function in the same coherent reality if we were all like walking around on psychedelic trips so open-ended question, <laughs> open-ended answer. Awesome. Well, just wrapping up here, any last thoughts that you, either of you guys have with anything that was discussed today, anything that's burning on your guys' mind that you still want to get out there? I think to me, there's so much is burning. <laughs> we can talk about the subject for hours, right, Nizar? But uh, yeah. I'll leave it for yeah, I don't one have hour episode. Okay. <laughs> you know, thank you for doing what you do, Toby, and uh, bringing yeah, it here. Absolutely. What uh, if people want to connect uh, with either of you guys? I don't know, if, Elena, if you want people to be able to connect with mm -hmm. you. I know, Nizar, you have uh, the coaching. Do you want to share yeah. how people can connect with you? Yeah, I do one-on-one uh, -on -one coaching, and and as Toby mentioned, I also do uh, webinars, which I need to to uh, get back into doing more frequently. But uh, I think the best way is to f uh, follow my Instagram, which is at uh, Taki underscore MD T A K I underscore MD, um, and then my website is um, www.taki.coach. And your OnlyFans is what again? Oh yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> good uh, good name for that. You can post it in the show notes. Of course, of course. And Elena, I'm not sure if if you want people to be able to connect with you. If you do, you can. Yeah, I think um, I definitely want people to connect with me if they're interested. Um, in, uh, in, in any kind of questions that we were talking about today. I don't have um, so a good like social platform. I guess people can probably connect with me maybe a tweet on Twitter that I sent up for yesterday. <laughs> it's my first name, Elena underscore, my last name, Buglo, uh, which you can probably have like, in, in comment section. Uh, I'm definitely working on starting uh, like a YouTube channel and uh, an Instagram for this kind of content but twitter will probably work for now great great and if you guys enjoyed the show today go ahead and like and subscribe to our youtube channel you can find us at roscoe's wetsuit and all of the audio podcasts are available on spotify apple podcasts 
Stitcher and just about anywhere else that audio podcasts are available. So again, I wanted to thank each of you for coming on the show today. This was a really interesting new, uh, uh, you know, way of having two guests on. So really enjoyed, uh, enjoyed talking with you guys today. Awesome. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Toby. Let's definitely do it again soon. Yes, we will definitely do a part two, part three. <laughs> All right.